This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. When the Supreme Court earlier this year overturned nearly 50 years of settled constitutional law protecting the right to an abortion, Democrats hoped the momentum from public anger over the decision would pull voters to the polls in the 2022 midterms. Now, a new collection of essays, Aftermath, Life in Post-Row America, offers a searing look at the critical role that abortion rights have played in improving the lives of women and pregnant people and what's at stake as it's overturned. It also examines a future without Roe and what options there are to secure reproductive freedom in the future. My guest is Elizabeth Hines, author and editor of Aftermath, Life in Post-Row America. The book features essays by Jessica Valenti, Alyssa Milano, Soraya Chamali, Michelle Goodwin, and many others, including myself. Welcome to the program, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So obviously the uh, book was a high-speed turnaround given that it went from um, being planned to published in a few months. I imagine you might have expected that the Supreme Court would do what it did. But tell me about what was the impetus for you to put such a book together? Mm, Yeah, it was very fast. Um, And the impetus was anger and disbelief and rage. Um, You know, I uh, am the mother of three children and um, the night that the the that Justice Alito's draft decision was leaked, my phone uh, started lighting up with text messages from friends of mine, um, you know, who were parents, who are parents and who, you know, were going back and forth, uh, you know, texting each other saying, what do we do now? What are we going to do um, to protect our children's lives and their freedom um, and their bodily autonomy? Um, And, you know, the next morning after I spent sort of a fitful night, you know, reading nonstop all of the news stories that were coming out. I woke up the next morning and I was uh, chatting with a friend and, you know, she really um, sort of put it to me. She said, well, yes, this is terrible, but what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to vote and I'm going to donate money and what, you know, and she said, no, but really, what are you going to do? And that challenge really moved me in a way to sort of, you know, this moment of saying, listen, we all have gifts and skills and talents. um, And how are we each going to use them to try to drive change, the, the kind of change we would like to see. And because I have a background in in writing and journalism, I sort of understood pretty quickly that the way that I was going to try to help out was by collecting the voices of journalists and everyday people and experts in various fields who would be willing to talk about what the loss of these rights um, was going to mean um, to American society. Um, And so that's what we did. I reached out to lots and lots of people and yourself included. Mm -hmm. And so many just said, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, And I think it was also helped along by the fact that the proceeds um, from this book are going to um, help fund abortion care providers uh, who are doing really critical work to support women and pregnant people um, in states all across this country. One of the important things is that we hear stories of 
um, the personal impact. Tell me how in the book Aftermath, we hear the, the kind of personal responses to the loss of abortion rights, because ultimately it's lives at stake, right? It's people's well-being and lives at stake rather than, you know, the political calculations are secondary, but it's people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think unsurprisingly, the people who contributed to this book, um, you know, were all uh, in a state of feeling, you know, quite outraged and, and you know, quite uh, committed to standing up um, to try to to uh, improve the, the current state of affairs. Um, you know, I think uh what each of these people brought in their own way some of these stories are personal some of these are stories of people who did have you know um who were raped and and had an abortion uh some of them you know became pregnant unintentionally and had an abortion uh some of them uh became pregnant intentionally and realized somewhere along uh, their pregnancy journey that there was a medical issue that was going to force them to terminate a very much wanted pregnancy. One of the things that's really important to me about this collection is that it really offers um, a range of experiences um, along the abortion spectrum, right? So, you know, for some people, um, having an abortion was uh, the most devastating thing that they've had to do in their lives. For other people, it was not the most devastating thing. It was a choice that they made at a point in their lives that was the right choice for them. Um, and I think we have to be allow ourselves to be honest um, about the fact that every person is an individual and every person has a different relationship to their body and what they would like to have happen in their body. So I really um, hope that we can increasingly make room for a diversity of stories about reproductive health. They don't all hew to the same line. Um, and that should be okay, right? right? One, I mean, one of the pieces mm -hmm. that really uh, moved me was Rebecca Traister's uh, story, her essay in uh, Aftermath, the abortion stories we didn't tell, how decades of silence left us unprepared for the post-Roe fight. And there's so much blame to go around, right, Liz? Uh, we didn't hear enough about early enough uh, to change the culture in our newspapers, in even movies and television shows. And so the right and the, the anti-abortion right uh, ended up winning the storytelling fight, if you will, by conflating, you know, fetal cells with life, with, uh, you know, um, electrical uh, impulses on an ultrasound with, with actual living babies. And it seemed as though they managed to make much more headway in the storytelling aspect of how you know of, of of birth and pregnancy rather than the advocates of the right to an abortion yeah i think that's i that you know that that jives with how i think about it you know um and you know i, I would say that for me, when you have a right, you know, when you have something like Roe v. Wade codified in law, and when you are a person like me, you know, I was born in 1975, I grew up in a country in which, yes, there were challenges to abortion rights, but it was our right, and it was impossible 
really for so many folks who were not spending their lives working in the reproductive justice movement to really grasp um, how fragile that right was. You know, when you talk to people who were working in these fields, they were clear long ago that, you know, this was going to be something that really could fall, right? And, and I want to give those people a lot of credit for trying very hard to knock on the doors of the rest of us and say, um, hey, by the way, we really have to be concerned, right? We, this election of 2020 matters tremendously, right? Because whoever is president may get to, you know, nominate a bunch of, put a bunch of people on the Supreme Court. And that is exactly what happened. And I think, you know, I don't want to miss how hard uh, people who were working in reproductive justice and reproductive health were, were working to try to alert the rest of us that this really was something that was that was very fragile. I think they tried very hard. I think, you know, mainstream media and many of those of us who were not spending our daily lives doing this work kind of got into this bubble of like, I can't, you know, you just, it's just so hard to believe, right? And and I don't blame us, frankly, either, because the the Supreme Court has not done a lot of taking away of human rights, right? But that's what they did here. Um, yeah, Liz, can you give me a sense of the 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 angle that is so critical to reproductive justice, which is how race plays into it and how those stories are told in the book aftermath. The, women of color in particular, uh, people of color are disproportionately impacted by abortion um, bans. And which are the voices that you feature in aftermath that bring that up? And what are some of the, what's the gist of some of their arguments? Yeah, it was really important to me in doing this book that we have a diversity, a racial diversity um, in our authors. You know, I mean, I think so much of the storytelling that has happened historically has foregrounded the experiences of white straight women. Um, and I think, you know, our lives are far more complicated than that. And there are far more you know, perspectives out there in the world that need to be given, you know, an opportunity um, to raise their voice. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, what I heard from, you know, people who were working on the ground, there are three essays in this book that are actually Q&As that I did um, with folks who work, um, you know, it, on the ground with people who are seeking abortion. So um, we uh, talked to uh, Robin Marty, who uh, is the author of um, a, a, an essential, the essential guide to, you know, abortion access in, in the United States. Um, and and you know, she works at the West Alabama Women's Clinic. Um, and she talked to me about who the people are who are, you know, seeking abortions in the state of Alabama. And, you know, she pointed out most of them are already mothers. Most of them are people, women of color, black women. Uh, most of them already um, or are, are, you know, do not have great economic resources. Um, and I do think, again, being honest about the fact that, you know, 
if you are a person of of means, um, you know, you will continue to be able to find a way in this country to access abortion care, right? You'll be able to get on a plane, most likely, you'll be able to fly to where you need to go, you probably maybe you work a job that has, you know, uh, paid sick leave, or, you know, you can take a day off from work and not have to worry that, you know, uh, you'll either get fired, or you won't be paid for that day's work. Um, but there are, you know, uh, millions of people across this country who have no such privilege, and these bans are affecting their lives in, you know, truly devastating ways. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that, you know, when we when these bans go into place in red states, for example, you know lots of clinics are now having to shut down in you know across the south and in places in the the midwest um and that causes a problem not merely for those seeking abortion right these are clinics that offer a wide variety of reproductive health care and when they're doors have to close we've then shut off millions of people from healthcare beyond abortion right we've shut them off from being able to access birth control from being able to have well person visits um for being able to lead a healthy life and so you know i think um and all of that you know of course because this is america has a racial component to it so you know i hope that you know those who can read this book who buy this book can read some of the perspectives about how the this you know how the loss of these rights disproportionately affects people of color it disproportionately affects people with disabilities trans folks um you know we we are not in this country all created equal we're just not we don't live those lives yet and uh, I'd like to point out, uh, as I did in, in my essay in the book, that there are plenty of right-wing anti-abortion women who end up going into clinics, quietly seeking abortion, seeing themselves as exceptions and, you know, uh, being protected by doctor-patient uh, or medical confidentiality. Um, and then uh, going right back around to the front of the clinic to protest the clinic and call for its closure. And that hypocrisy is something that really needs to be called out as well. Uh, Yifat Suskind, one of the other contributors to the book, Aftermath Life in post America, um, points out that there is a, um, a you know, th there are lessons to be learned from other nations. And we've seen in Latin America, in Europe, uh, in countries that are very Catholic, and traditionally expected to be anti-abortion where they've codified the right to an abortion into law. So let's, uh, let's turn finally to that aspect of the story because how can the United States restore the right to an abortion, restore the right to bodily autonomy, such a basic fundamental right in the future by looking at what others have done elsewhere? Yeah, well, you know, I think what you saw in Latin America was certainly that people got out in the streets, you know, that that was that that women uh, were willing to march in the streets and stand up for their rights and demand that their, you know, that their concerns be taken seriously. Um, I think we have some work to do here in the United States to continue to push um, in that kind of way. Um, you know, when I spoke to um, these these folks who who work in organizations that that provide these services, you know, um, when I interview people, I always ask 
you know, is there anything that you, you you would like me to to share that I haven't asked you yet? And what I found when I asked, um, you know, the the folks who are actually doing this work, um, you know, what it was they wanted people to know about how we can keep things, you know, moving in a positive direction. The thing that every single one of them pointed out was this, this need to think about how we are resourcing the work that is going to go on to continue to move, you know, uh, abortion rights, reproductive health rights forward in a, a positive and inclusive way in this country. You know, I think sometimes- and what's meant by that resourcing the work? The resourcing is is funding, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, these are places that really, truly need funding. And I think, you know, sometimes for those of us who who are, you know, uh, living lives that are not deeply in the movement, you know, be hearing just write a check doesn't feel like the most engaging way to be part of the work, right? But it is also true that these are places that really need resources. They need financial support in order to do the work that they're trying to do. So, you know, if the West Alabama Women's Clinic wants to keep its doors open, it's got to have funds in order to do that. And I think particularly now that, you know, the federal um, protections are gone, what we have to be really careful about is just isolating folks in red states and only investing funds in blue states. Clinics and people who are working on this issue in red states continue to need our support. As I said before, they're providing a wealth of services, of whole person services to people um, you know, who, who need their care. And there's also going to be electoral work that has to be done. I mean, now that we understand where the Supreme Court is, what we have to do is electoral work, right? We have to vote, we have to stand up, not just, we can't silo reproductive health issues from voting rights issues, right? We have to vote and we have to make it possible for people in states like Alabama and Mississippi and Texas to actually be able to use their votes so that they don't get disenfranchised. So, you know, I really encourage people who want to make a dif difference in this realm to support organizations that need support that are working in a variety of states, you know, to look and say, okay, you know, where's the T, what kind of work is the T fund doing? You know, what that's in Texas, what kind of, you know, work is West Alabama Women's Health Center doing? You know, what, what can I do in, I don't know, Montana? There, you know, all around this country, there are people in every state who are working really hard to try to support women's rights and pregnant people's rights. And we can do great things to support them if we're willing to just do a little bit of the work to say, okay, wh where can I, where can I lend my, my, my dollars and my, um, my support in terms of, you know, voting rights initiatives and that sort of thing. We have a big election this week, right? Um, and, you know, we're, we're in every state, um, you know, there are going to be ways that we can, we can help out. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Liz. Where can people find out more? Uh, they can just find copies of Aftermath at their local independent bookstore or look online to purchase them? Exactly. They can look at 
local independent bookstores, if they don't see it there, they can ask because every bookstore can order it if it's not already there. There's also bookshop.com, uh, which is a great website that supports independent books, bookstores um, and will ship a book right to you. And remembering that uh, proceeds from the book are going to be supporting um, organizations that are working to help protect uh, our reproductive rights. Thank you again, Liz, so much for joining us today and for the work that you've done to put this book forward. Thank you for being a part of it, Sonali. We were so grateful. My guest has been Elizabeth Hines, author and editor. She edited the new book, Aftermath, Life in Post-Row America. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You With Sonali.